Hello, listeners. Jordan here. I just want to let you know that you can listen to Nighttime early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Include it with Prime. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. You are tuned to the Nighttime Podcast, focused on the fringe of Canada. Every town has that story, the one that everyone knows. It could be an historic event, maybe a past achievement, or perhaps it's simply a famous resident that the community wears as a sort of badge of honor. But in less fortunate communities, the story may not be a source of pride. It could instead be an ugly scar. As it turned out, I'm from one of those unfortunate communities. And during this three-part series, we're going to hear my town story. It takes place on May 7th of 1992, and it's the story of a robbery gone wrong turned mass murder at my neighborhood McDonald's restaurant. Today marks a somber anniversary in Sydney River, Nova Scotia. It was on this day, 25 years ago, that the lives of four young people and their families were changed forever, and the community was left grieving and gripped with fear. Dan McIntosh now with more on the McDonald's murders. There's nothing to mark the site of the former Sydney River McDonald's restaurant except an empty parking lot and grassy field. That's okay with Kathy Burroughs. We don't want anything to mark the day because it, it's marked on our souls. It was 25 years ago that three restaurant employees were murdered and a fourth critically injured in a botched robbery gone terribly wrong. It was a case that shocked the community and the country. Many here say things have never really been the same since. To join me on the show and lead the storytelling for this series, I've turned to the retired reporter who is the face and voice of nearly every local newscast I watched as a child. When a member of my community reads about or remembers the McDonald's murders, they likely hear his voice providing the narration. Fonz Jessam carried this story from its first moments, through the arrests, through the trials, through a best-selling book, and still to this day, nearly 30 years later, he's still the one telling the story. When I decided to cover it here on Nighttime, I couldn't have imagined doing it without his collaboration. And thankfully, Fonz agreed. So let's get to it. Tonight, in this episode of Nighttime, we're going to be joined by Atlantic Canadian journalism royalty, Fonz Jessam. And our topic is the 1992 Sydney River McDonald's murders. My name is Fonce Jessam. Um, at the time of these murders, I was a reporter with ATV in Sydney, um, and uh, I was the reporter who covered murder um, or crime. That was one of uh, the beats I covered. Um, so I got the call very early on the morning of the shootings, 
another reporter uh, had heard some traffic on the scanner about taxi drivers reporting a shooting at the McDonald's. Um, so I raced there, uh, met up with a cameraman and started coverage that lasted three years through three trials and ended in me doing a half hour documentary for uh, the CTV network and uh, ultimately writing the book Murder at McDonald's uh, because the, you know, the story that grew from that single phone call early in that May morning of 1992 became arguably the biggest story I've ever covered in, in my 35-year career. Biggest story you've ever covered? Arguably. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I covered Swiss Air. I covered the, the war in the Balkans. I covered um, the uh, first attempt to establish a civilian police force in Haiti, which really didn't go well. Uh, were, so, you, were you there for that? Oh, yes. Yeah, oh, yeah, wow. Yeah. Uh, so those globally were probably bigger stories, mm-hmm. arguably bigger, certainly Swiss Air. Mm-hmm. Um, but as far as a story that has attached itself to me, um, this would be the biggest. I still can't go home uh, without somebody asking me what's going on with those guys in jail, you know, what's going on. I mean, it's that story has, in Cape Breton, become permanently affixed to me. So when I go home, I'm reminded that that people remember that story more than any I've ever told. Now, talking of back home, can you describe Sydney, Cape Breton in the time of this crime in 92? Yeah, Sydney was a city in decline and had been really since 1967 when when Hawker Sidley announced they were closing the Sydney Steel Plant, um, which wasn't called the Sydney Steel Plant then. It was Hawker Sidley uh, Steel Plant. Um, but they had that amazing Black Friday march. This I'm not reporting from having covered it because I hadn't even started school. Um, but 20,000 people marched through Sydney and, and sang that song, Save Our Industry, um, at the racetrack. And there were two politicians present who were moved to tears. One of them was Alan J. McKechn, a federal minister. The other, G.I. Smith, the premier. And they promised they would do whatever they can or could to keep steel making in Sydney. And that was probably, well, it, was, it has now been proven to have been a huge political mistake. It led to more than a decade of governments returning to Sydney, both federal and provincial. Um, it just continued to decline, but they poured millions of dollars into it, and the federal government poured millions of dollars into other failed projects. Um, but it developed a sense in Sydney among some that the answers to the problems in the economy had to come from them government was responsible for fixing it because these men swore they would and governments after them tried. Um, By 1992, the steel plant was still functioning, but nobody expected it to last. Nobody in my generation, we graduated high school in 1980, went to work at the steel plant and we were the first generation not to. You know, my father, grandfather, you know, they all did. Um, Either the coal mines or the steel plant. Um, but that was in both industries were in decline because they were tied together and coal was seen as a dirty fuel elsewhere on the globe. So exports were in decline. Um, and the thing about politicians is they grow old and their promises die with their political careers. And a new generation of politicians came in that began to look at the economy as opposed to the emotion of the situation uh, and they stopped spending money in Sydney and started to remove programs so there was a real decline 
And by 1992, the economy was in full decline, and, but the people really didn't realize it. Sydney was a city in name only, and everybody believed somebody, they, were going to do something to fix it and bring it back to its glory days. But it was a city that depended on a global economy that had changed, and it didn't change with that global economy, so it was doomed. Um, and that sort of set the stage for what was happening in Sydney in 1992. Um, there was sort of a, a disenfranchised youth at the time because there was nothing to look forward to in Cape Breton. Um, there was an older generation that believed these politicians have to come back and finish what they promised, except those politicians were retired and the new ones didn't care. Um, you know, and uh, there were people like me. I was fortunate enough to get a job in my own town. My pretty much my whole graduating class had left Cape Breton mm -hmm. because there wasn't anything there from from for a 1980 graduating class. I mean, that's an exaggeration. Some people got work, but the majority of us, certainly those of us from Whitney Pier, where I grew up, we were gone. Mm -hmm. um, but I had been reporting in Cape Breton for 12 years full time by then and following this and realizing that this is what was happening to my hometown. It was it was slowly turning into a ghost town, but not realizing it. Um, but it was still a place where there was a fierce pride, um, a sense of we help each other, we gather together. And that came in a large way out of what happened in 1967 when, when 20,000 people marched up Prince Street to the, to the uh, harness track to listen to the speeches of these politicians and try and save the steel plant. Um, and that sense that if we all pull together, we can save this thing still existed in that generation. Um, so when somebody came on hard times or something bad happened, the community really did rally around. Um, you know, if somebody had cancer, uh, that, that meant going to Halifax for treatment. Uh, and people would have fundraisers immediately. They still do. That's still very much a part of the Cape Breton culture. Um, Sydney had been immune for a while to the Cape Breton culture, the broader Cape Breton culture, but had very much become a part of it because it was the industrial core and it was the serious business of of making steel and marketing and, and, and it was a city but by 1992 really it wasn't a city it was as i say a city in name only and i mean i'm looking more as as a historian than a journalist when i when i say that Interesting. you know can you describe derek wood's life before the crime such as what type of life he led and what his future goals would have been before this happened well this is obviously based on what i was told by his friends uh, because derek uh, never did talk to me but um, he was that guy in your high school class that was quiet and you never really knew quite what he did when school was over because he wasn't in any of the groups or involved in any of the extracurricular activity he he was a little mousy a little nervous a little awkward but wanted very much to fit in uh, but kind of disappeared nobody knew where he went after school you know because he probably went home um, he was socially awkward. He wanted very much to fit in. Um, he managed to land a job at McDonald's in Sydney River, unfortunately. Uh, fortunately for him at the time. Um, as far as his dreams of a future, he was not the kind of guy to look beyond now. Um, he had no sense of uh, a future. I suspect if he hadn't have fallen in with the group he fell in with and developed the fantasy that we're going to be good fellows, we're going to be the ultimate gangsters and bad guys. Um, he probably would have gone on to become a manager 
at a McDonald's restaurant for his entire life. As you know, in the economy that still exists in Cape Breton, which is still suffering from that change, there are people who at that time started working at McDonald's or Tim Hortons or those those industries that traditionally in a city employ young people during their university years and then they move on. Mm -hmm. But people who started there in in the late 80s, early 90s still work there today. Mm -hmm. It's a career. It's a career choice to work in the service industry in Sydney. And I suspect that would have been his career, but his nightlife, he got mixed up with a crowd of people who, the teenagers at the time felt that breaking enters or stealing from cars was okay to help supplement your fun because not all of them were able to get jobs. And they all bought into, not all, obviously, but there was a large group that bought into the the idea that, well, insurance company replaces everything anyway, so it doesn't really matter. And Derek had done some some petty crimes, some petty break-ins, and that sort of brought him to the attention of the more popular young men, like Freeman McNeil and Darren Muse, um, because he was a willing participant in these petty crimes. Um, so he was on two paths. He probably had this not happened, would still be working at a restaurant in Sydney now Mm -hmm. and would have straightened up like a lot of those other kids who were involved in those petty crimes did. Mm -hmm. Um, But he did get mixed up in this and his life changed dramatically. As far as his life at that point, he was was working at McDonald's, as you described. Where did the idea for the robbery of McDonald's come from? Oh, it was his idea. Um, But he had somehow connected himself. It's interesting if you look at the trajectory of the three killers. Um, Freeman McNeil and Darren Muse were very popular in high school. Um, they were confident, good-looking, outgoing. Out, you know, they were the kind of guys that drew attention to themselves. Um, so they made sure that 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 whatever grouping they were in, they were sort of in a leadership role. Um, they were popular, but high school ended. They were going to be the kind of guys that Bruce Springsteen sings about in Glory Days. It was over, and they didn't have the hockey past, or even they had no real glory. They were just popular kids, mm-hmm. but it was over, and they were hanging around pool halls. And Freeman was trying to get work as a security guard. In fact, he did. Uh, Darren wasn't really looking to do anything. He was talking about he was a martial artist, and he was into fitness, and he wanted to teach kids, and he was talking about those things. But he talked about everything. Um, so they were still sort of attractive to Derek because they were popular and he wasn't. He was the silent high school kid, right? The one who sort of drifted in and out of class and did little else. Um, so he attached himself to them as part of their criminal enterprise. You know, they had originally planned to rob a uh, those vans that fill the bank machines. Oh, the Brinks truck. Yeah, well, yeah, the little Brinks vans, and now they're done by private ones, but back then it was Brinks, until they realized the guards wore guns, and then the appeal quickly uh, faded. Um, But Derek, he was sent downstairs. He was still a new employee at the restaurant. He had just passed his his employee uh, test and was about to become full-time, and so that that puts him in roughly the three-month category. Um, But he did pass. He was going to be given his permanent job. Um, but he was, he didn't really know the business that well yet because he was working kind of part-time and full-time and taking shifts where he could. And he was sent downstairs one day. The conveyor belt that came from the back 
that the supply trucks would unload and it would take all of the supplies down to the basement where the big freezer was and where everything was kept. Obviously, it wasn't up in the main restaurant. All the storage was done in the basement. Um, they couldn't get the conveyor working. So Derek was assigned to go help the guys unload the truck from the lower back door that he had never seen before. Um, and he went out and he opened it up and they were carrying things in and he happened to look in the downstairs office, which he had never seen before, and he saw this great big safe. Big safe, big money. Mm -hmm. That's the mind of Derek Wood. He had himself convinced and quickly convinced Freeman McNeil and Darren Muse there would be 200000 on a Wednesday night. He had no idea that restaurants did daily deposits. He saw the money leave the upstairs office safe and go down to the downstairs office safe. And he believed that's where it stayed. Um, he didn't realize it was just part of a process of, of keeping the money moving out of the building downtown and into the bank. So that broken conveyor belt um, is as much as anything responsible for the plan that began to develop in his mind that he could share with his new friends about the big heist, the $200,000 score they were going to make by emptying these safes, the two safes up, up and lower. Yeah, what was the actual plan that night before everything went so wrong? And can you just talk about its development and Derek's organization of the plan? I'll talk about its development. I don't think there was any organization. It was, it was nothing more than an idea. I mean, they did, Freeman McNeil went out and tested the gun, shooting at some flows, of, uh, ice flows in the harbor. Um, they talked about it. They tried to involve some other kids, um, two in particular. Um, they went a week or two earlier, possibly even a month earlier, to do it. And uh, the fourth didn't show up, so they bailed that night. But their their idea was that Derek would prop that door he had discovered open. Um, and remember, we're back in 1992. That wasn't going to set any alarms off. It was just a, you know, an, a door that could only be open from the inside of the restaurant, so there was no real reason to have it alarmed. Mm -hmm. It wasn't. Um, so he was going to prop that open. He was going to let the, his co-conspirators in. The plan was to have a man in the car, a man on the door, and two go in and clean out what he believed um, would be this huge hall that he was going to convince the manager uh, to open the safe. And he believed that he had seen them. He started to watch them around the safe as much as he could, and he thought he knew most of the combination from watching um, so that's the kind of planning he was involved in. But it was, I mean, you had one guy walking in with a full face mask and another guy walking in with a gun and no mask. And he was the only one who needed a mask because he worked there. And another guy walking in with a, a shovel handle. These guys didn't do a lot of planning. I mean, they just expected to walk in and be handed the money and walk out. Um, there was no criminal mastermind in that group. There was no real planning. There was no planning at all beyond what was going to happen once they had the money. Um, and there was no planning as to what should happen if they encountered employees. And that ultimately was the big flaw. What was the plan for, for what they were going to do with the money or why were they doing this? Well, Darren Muse and Freeman McNeil liked to exaggerate their importance. They were still trying to sort of cling to that the sense of being the it guys that they had developed in high school. Um, but they weren't. And so they decided they were going to be big-time criminals, nothing small. 
They were going to start a life of crime. And this was going to be the nest egg. You know, they were going to, $200,000 in 1992 was a lot of money. $200,000 for these guys. They probably thought they could each buy a home. Um, They weren't that bright. Um, But there was no, okay, here's how much anybody is going to get planning. I mean, Freeman, prior to the robbery, put some stereo components on layaway at local stereo stores. He was into, uh, you know, installing stereo systems in both his own car, his girlfriend's mother's car, and some, I believe, his own mother's car. Um, So he did put some things on layaway in anticipation of his big uh, windfall. Um, There's no evidence to suggest, and there never was, that Derek had any plans for the money. In fact, he never took any of the money that they did get. And uh, nothing to suggest Darren Muse had any plans for, for the big haul they were about to make. Um, they were just starting a career that they were fantasizing about. They were watching cheap movies and, and trying to live the gangster lifestyle. Now, we'll, we'll get to the, the crime now. Can, can you describe, prior to the crime, can you describe the scene in the restaurant that night? Mm-hmm. Like, who was there and what was Derek doing there? Unfortunately, everybody who was there shouldn't have been there, but I mean, it's unfortunate no matter how this thing plays out. Derek finished his shift as the restaurant closed, um, but didn't leave, which was unusual. Um, He went out front into the main restaurant area with uh, another of the workers um, who was waiting for a drive and sat at one of the tables and they smoked, which once the restaurant was closed, Donna Warren, who was the night manager, allowed them to do that. It was sort of against the rules, but it was closed. And I mean, she was a very nice person and she really did look after the workers that were on her shift. Um, She was a young woman uh, from North Sydney who had just graduated high school uh, and was planning to go to law school. She was working at McDonald's to get tuition together. She wanted to be a lawyer. Um, But she had taken that shift as as a favor. It wasn't, she wasn't supposed to be there. Um, her friend Arlene McNeil was a counter worker, as was Derek and the other person he stayed smoking with. Um, they were supposed to leave when the restaurant closed. There was no reason for them to be there at all. The only people supposed to be in the restaurant were Donna, whose job it was to tally up the money, close up the safe, and Neil uh, Burroughs, who was the early um, maintenance man. The maintenance shift was divided in two. Um, he wasn't supposed to be there either. He um, had injured himself in a car accident, but agreed to come back to work early if they gave him the early maintenance shift, which had none of the heavy lifting, just the cleaning. Um, so he was already at work in the kitchen, cleaning up the, the counters, the, the grill, the stainless steel facing on, on all of this, you know, the, the appliances back there. So he was doing that. Donna was doing her job of counting up the receipts and get everything ready to seal in the safe. She was also filling the trays that would be taken by the morning workers and inserted into their cash registers, the floats, because every cash register obviously has to start with a certain amount of cash in it, and she was responsible for getting the morning floats ready. The night manager did that. That's why she was staying. She and Arlene were close friends. They both lived in the north side, but they didn't depend upon each other because they both had cars. But... They were nervous young women and decided they would rather drive two cars, one behind the other, in case one had car trouble or just they they kept each other company on the drive home at night um, from separate cars. So 
Arlene was waiting for, for Donna to finish up so she could follow her home as far as North Sydney, where Donna would have turned off. Arlene herself was going a little further to her home, which was uh, out in um, the Brudor area. Um, so she should have been gone. Derek should have been gone. And the other worker waited for a drive and did leave. And then when that worker left, the other counter worker, uh, Derek noticed that Arlene was getting materials ready for a child's birthday party at the restaurant the next morning. Arlene wasn't one to just sit around and wait for her friend. She wanted to do what she could do to help the restaurant for the next morning. She was a, a very vivacious and, and energetic young woman and a very positive personality and a positive presence in the workforce. And so it wasn't her job. Her shift had ended. She had already clocked out, but she was getting the sticks for the balloons and the straws and everything ready so that the early morning worker would have a leg up when they get in keeping herself busy until Donna finished. So Derek volunteered to help. Very unusual. Arlene didn't really know him. He was new. No, none of the employees knew him well. As I say, he had just passed his, his employee uh, accreditation. He had just managed to make himself a part of the real workforce. Um, but she thought that was very generous. That was nice. He helped. So he helped for a while. Um, and then he disappeared. They just thought he went home. When, in fact, what he had done was he went down to the basement where he had been working with her and he made his way out to that back door, opened it up, and waited because his co-conspirators were supposed to arrive and meet him at the door. But at that time, they didn't. But that was the scene in the restaurant. What you had was a group of young people working, none of whom should have been there, uh, but through a variety of circumstances, they all were there. They were all really good, dedicated employees, and they were just doing their jobs. Well, the plan originally was for Freeman McNeil and Darren Muse to drive Freeman's car across the Sydney Bypass, which ran directly beside the Sydney River McDonald's restaurant. And there was a side street with a bit of a dirt road that led nowhere directly across from the restaurant. So that was sort of the parking place for the getaway vehicle. Run across the highway and meet Derek at the open door. Well, they weren't there. Um, so he, he was trying to figure out where they went and uh, he went inside and called um, the pay phone where they were supposed to be and he wasn't getting an answer because they were sitting in the car. It was cold that night. So he ran down to the Tim Hortons across the street and found them and, and said, well, what's going on? You know, let's get this, this thing done. So once they got their initial lack of coordination out of the way, the three of them went around, parked the car came back, and he had left when he ran across the street. That's why his kit bag was in the door. He was going to be holding the door open. His kit bag was not. But because he had to run across the street to try and find these guys, this was his backup. Okay. Because if that door closed, that was it. There was no outside handle. It was like the door on a crack house. That's how you can tell a crack house if there's no outside door handle. Huh. Um, because there was no need for anyone from the outside ever to enter this door. If, if somebody was dropping something off, then someone from the inside would have to open the door to allow them in. Mm -hmm. So he propped the door open with his kit bag, ran across the street, got in the, the car with, with his co-conspirators, drove to this dirt road across the highway. They ran across the highway, down the, through the front of the restaurant, stepped over the bag inside, and they were making their way into the restaurant. Uh, Darren Muse had a, a full face mask on. Freeman McNeil was carrying a shovel. And for reasons nobody ever explained or understood, 
Derek had the gun. Um, I believe to this day this crime would not have occurred had either of the other two had the gun. But Derek had the gun. Um, why he was surprised to see Arlene McNeil next to Donna Warren, I don't know. Because he left the restaurant a short time before. I think he had expected that she would be gone. He thought he was just going to have to deal with Donna Warren and get her to open the safe. If his own, initially he thought he would get into the downstairs safe without anyone spotting him and get the combination. And if the big money was in there, then they could go. Um, but really he didn't know the combination. And Donna came downstairs to help Arlene, who was finishing up for that children's party. So the two girls were downstairs, getting ready to leave, get in their own cars and go, and they should have been gone. So they walked out of the office and were just talking and walking as these three guys came out of the dark. They were coming out of the storage room where that door was, where nobody should be, and they, the two groups stopped. It was just this awkward pause, and then Arlene McNeil recognized Derek, and then she thought it was a joke because masked man, guy with a stick, and Derek. Well, it's Derek. I just, he just helped me. So she, she said, is this supposed to be funny? And Derek shot her in the head. And she fell. And Arlene, or Donna, began to scream, fell down beside her, tried to help her, and he grabbed her and uh, told the other two guys, keep her here. And I think the other two at that point were as shocked as Donna, that his initial reaction was to shoot Arlene. He didn't need Arlene. He needed Donna. So he shot Arlene in the head. Um, she was still breathing, still alive. Um, and Donna was stayed on her knees on the floor next to her trying to help her friend. And uh, Freeman McNeil stood over her with the club. Darren Muse had a knife. So they kept her there, and they listened as Wood ran upstairs, and they heard gunfire. The, the statements of all three men, including Wood himself, vary on whether there was one shot or two when he went upstairs. But he went up to shoot Neil Burroughs, who was the the um, maintenance man who was doing the cleaning in the kitchen. Uh, and then he ran back down, and he grabbed Donna, and he said, come on. And the other two followed him upstairs, uh, and he took Donna into the room with the safe that was upstairs and ordered her to open it. And she was crying, of course, and begging for her freedom and um, struggling with that safe. In the meantime, the other two um, got caught up in what turned into a killing frenzy. I mean, I've talked to forensic psychiatrists about this, and they, they believe it's highly unlikely that three young men were severe sociopaths, although they appeared to be, and they think it was more likely that they got caught up in a mob mentality at that moment. And these guys couldn't kill Neil Burroughs. He was in his late 20s, a uh, father of a very young boy, husband, uh, and tough as nails. Um, it's the worst crime scene I have ever seen, and I've seen many uh, in this country and others. Um, he fought. He kept climbing back up that stainless steel skirt to the stove, and his hand marks in blood stayed there to show. Um, they shot him in the head twice. The first shot that Derek did deliver, and I believe he only shot him once. I believe one of the other two shot him as well. Um, went in beside his ear and exited his throat. It didn't penetrate his skull. 
and that's why he was alive when the other two went up and found him. Um, Derek Muse cut his throat to try and uh, kill him. Uh, Freeman McNeil pounded on him with the shovel handle. When he would be climbing up, he'd club him back down. And uh, Darren kept trying to stab him with the knife after having cut his throat. And then one of the two, um, and it depends on whose version of events you believe, and the only person who was really honest in his statement was Wood, and he can't recall which of the two came for the gun, but he thinks it was Freeman. Freeman claims it was Darren. Um, Darren says he didn't shoot anybody, he just cut his throat. But one of the two got that gun, and that's where that second shot... There's no evidence of that, but that second shot entered his brain. Um, if When Derek went up, he shot him twice, there wouldn't have been the fight. There would have been no Neil to fight. Um, so, you know, the evidence at the scene, the struggle, the blood, the fact that they cut his throat, clubbed him, shot him twice, stabbed him repeatedly, suggests that when Derek Wood went up and shot him, he shot him that one shot that didn't penetrate the brain and ended up in his throat, and that the other two did everything they could to kill him without the gun, and then decided to get the gun to finish the job. By that time, um, Derek had given up on the downstairs safe, cleaned out the upstairs safe, although there were $5 bills and $2 bills on the floor. He shot Donna Warren in the head and again in the eye. Um, at very close range, there was black stippling and, and it showed that it was, a, it was maybe an inch or two from her eye. She was laying on her back after the shot in the back of the head to take the shot in the front of the head. And her blood spread very quickly and, and surrounded the bills that were spilled, so they were left. And it, he went to the other two who were still in this violent orgy with Neil Burroughs just meters away. Um, said, we got to go, we got to go, we got to go. And at this point, Jimmy Fagan arrived. He wasn't supposed to be there for another hour. shift didn't start for an hour, but... He liked to come early to meet with the late shift people who were still there and just clown around a bit. He was very much the 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 Mr. Congeniality of the Sydney River McDonald's restaurant, if that's applicable. Um, he was just a fun, loving guy who loved his job and loved the people he worked with and went to work an hour early just to talk to people. He didn't have to be there. And he had traded shifts with Neil Burroughs. That's how Neil managed to get the light duty shift. Um, so in essence, I guess if anybody should have been there at that time that night, it was Jimmy, but he had given up his shift to Neil so he could come back to work early because he had been injured in an accident and he needed the lighter duty. Um, but Jimmy was, was an hour early and, uh, when they opened the door, he was standing there and he looked and he recognized Derek Wood as the new guy, but he wasn't sure what happened, what was going on. And Freeman McNeil shot him in the face. And then the three of them stepped over him uh, and ran across that highway back to their getaway car to start their uh, their escape. I understand that the police first learned of the tragedy that was unfolding from Jimmy Fagan's cab driver. Mm -hmm. uh, can you describe his entry in the scene, into the scene and what the cab driver saw? Yeah, he um, was in the process. He had circled the back parking lot to bring his passenger to, he had, he had driven Jimmy Fagan to work before, mm -hmm. and he knew that he'd be going in the door beside the drive-through, which was the employee entrance. So he circled his car around to allow Jimmy to get out and go in, and he saw that the door opened. 
So he knew his fare was good to go. So he, he was driving and had turned right, or left, pardon me, to drive down the long driveway of the restaurant when he heard the bang, the pop. Wasn't quite sure what it was. And then he looked and saw two men running. He didn't see three. And he thought, what the heck is that? And the door didn't close. So he circled back up around and came back and looked. And he could see that Jimmy was laying half in the restaurant, half out of the restaurant, face down. And he realized the sound he had heard must have been a gunshot. So he was terrified. Um, he started to leave. He radioed it into his dispatcher that his fare had been shot. He'd seen men running, that there was something wrong going on. Please call the police. Um, he was told to stay there. Another cab driver radioed, had heard him, stay there, we're on our way. And cabbies began to converge on the restaurant to, to help their fellow driver and to see what the heck was going on. One of those early arriving cab drivers jumped out of his cab and actually tried to, to deliver medical assistance to Jimmy Fagan, who was still breathing at the time while they waited for the ambulance. The, the taxi dispatcher called the police an ambulance. Mm -hmm. um, but the, the driver who had allowed Jimmy to get out to go to work never get out of his car until the other drivers arrived. He was simply terrified. And he continued to circle. He didn't stop his car. He was afraid to put it in park. Mm -hmm. He just circled that upper parking lot to make sure nobody could open a door and get in or nobody could shoot him while he waited, you know, minutes only, but what probably for him seemed like hours for those other cabs to arrive. And then the police and the ambulance. So we'll get into their, their getaway now. So as, as the, the three are fleeing, can you describe their getaway? Yeah. they uh, it, the, the getaway was probably the only part of this thing that was reasonably well planned. The car was parked across the street a distance away from the restaurant. Um, so it's not likely police would have been looking there for tire tracks um, unless the dog led them there. Um, so they ran across the, the highway, the 125, and get into the car. Uh, but before they get into the car, um, Freeman McNeil didn't want to have the shovel handle. He still had his shovel handle because uh, he was afraid it had blood on it and he would get blood in the car. So he threw it inside a culvert that ran under this dirt road. He just shoved it in, in there as far as he could get it to go. And then they jumped in the car and took off. And at this point, the realization settles over Derek that because he had to jam that back door open with his backpack to run and get his co-conspirators because they were running late, he never picked it up. It was still there. And it wasn't just any backpack. It had his McDonald's uniform and his McDonald's name tag. It was a neon sign pointing to Derek Wood. Um, he had to explain that. He was afraid to go back and get it because they too had seen the cab driver, so they knew police would be on the way. Now, he's realizing this in, in the backseat of the car as they're making their escape. The plan is to cut back in front of the restaurant and then left out toward uh, Mountain Road, which was where Freeman McNeil was living, at his mother's place, his home. Um, so he informed uh, Darren and Freeman that he forgot the knapsack. And they came up with this instant plan where he would say he was there smoking and that he heard shots and ran away. So they let him out of the car just before the Sydney River Bridge, before they crossed over to head up to Coxeath and up into the Mountain Road. Um, and he ran the back road there, uh, the name of which I've forgotten, um, and came across to King's Variety. The store is still there. I believe it's still a 24-hour store as well. Um, and he ran in and said, there's been a shooting. I heard shots. I work at McDonald's. I need a phone. I need a phone. The person behind the counter dialed 
Derek reported it, um, but he didn't think it was the police. He thought he had called the ambulance the wrong number. Uh, but still, he went outside and he was waiting and he wasn't sure what he was supposed to do. But he had, he had started his cover story. He called and reported it. I worked there. I heard it. I ran away. This explains the bag. He was out back smoking in his mind. This explains the bag. We're going to break at this point in the storytelling. Just as McDonald's employee Derek Wood splits from his co-conspirators Freeman McNeil and Glenn Muse to deal with the backpack he left propping open the basement door at the scene of the triple murder. In the next episode of this series, which will be released shortly, Fonz will continue to walk us through this horrific tragedy by following along with both the police investigation and the trio's attempt to cover the tracks. And with that, we'll end this episode of Nighttime. But before we go, I have some thanks. First of all, a big thank you to Fonz Jessam for appearing in this episode. I'd also like to thank the Toronto-based band Voxomnia for providing the musical theme. And lastly, but most importantly, a huge thank you to the listeners of Nighttime. Without you, this show would have seen the light of day many moons ago. Now, if you want more Nighttime, let me suggest the premium feed. For about the price of a cup of coffee, you can access the premium feed in which the episodes are posted earlier than in the free feed and are done without paid advertising. But it gets much better than that. The premium feed also includes additional content that'll take you even further into the rabbit holes. In the case of this episode, I'll be sharing a portion of my interview with Fonz that had to be cut from this episode. In the clip, Fonz walks us through his arrival to the restaurant shortly after shots rang out and just as law enforcement was securing the scene. If you're someone who likes crime reporting, you're not going to want to miss this. You can access the premium feed at patreon.com slash nighttime podcast. And with that said, let me thank the newest subscribers of the premium feed. Sean G, The Dharma Initiative, Sarah M, Grill Rye, and Miss Martin. Thank you for your generous support. For anyone else out there who'd like to support the show but can't help financially, you can give me a big hand by simply telling your friends about me. If any of you listening want to stay up to date with my activities on or off the show, you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I use the handle at NighttimePod. And if you have any story ideas or want to give feedback on this episode, I'd love to hear from you. You can contact me at nighttimepodcast.com slash contact. Now until next time, take care of each other, hug your loved ones tight, and stay safe out there. The Nighttime Podcast is written, hosted, and produced by Jordan Bonaparte. Copyright Jordan Bonaparte.